Paracast with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. Joseph A. Citro is a very interesting cat, a Vermont author and folklorist. So says the Wikipedia entry on Joseph A. Citro. Now, Joe, on here it says that you are occasionally referred to as the Bard of the Bazaar. How did you get that? Incredibly entertaining title. <laughs> yeah, one one has a problem freeing himself of certain demons. That was um, my the, the Boston Globe, I think, awarded me that title. They, they did an article about one of my books, and they're always looking for clever, alliterative ways to describe people. So I am the Bard of the Bizarre. It also says you are Ghostmaster General. <laughs> it's like, I can't defend myself against this stuff. Any, anytime there's, uh, well, not anytime, but often when there's an article about me, and they're likely to appear around Halloween, um, someone will search for another alliterative phrase, and I'll get tagged with it, and I'm just sorry you picked up on it. Well, actually, I, all I did was pick up on Wikipedia, which, of course, is the fountain of all current information for humanity. Uh, you, you've written a lot about topics involving ghosts and hauntings, um, specifically centered around New England and the New England right. states. What do you make of this, Joe? Is it, are people imagining this stuff, or are there really such things as ghosts? Well, I, I think probably both. People are imagining things, and I think there is such a thing as what I call the ghost experience. What research I've done leads me to believe that the thing we call ghosts are not really the spirits of the dead. They're something else. And people do have these experiences. People do see apparitions. People do have unexplainable occurrences that they can only explain in terms of an existing vocabulary. And one of those words is ghosts. I'm very careful how I answer that because um, if someone asks me if I believe in ghosts, I have to first refute the word believe and then I have to clarify the word ghosts. So I'm likely to say no, but I do believe that uh, people have the ghost experience. What do you think it boils down to? What is it? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's an unknown. I, I, I think this world is full of unknowns and full of mysteries, and one of the things I've tried to do is catalog some of those. I think, I, I think there are things that we are simply not going to be able to answer, and I think the thing we call ghosts is among those. I think probably UFO experience is among those. I don't think in terms of trapping, for example, I think 100 years from now, we're going to have exactly as much information as we did 100 years ago. I don't think it's part of this tangible world. Nonetheless, I think people have these experiences. I live in Burlington, Vermont, which is right on the shore of Lake Champlain, which is probably the fourth biggest lake in the, in the country. And it's like living next to a haunted house because for hundreds of years, people have been confronting an unidentified swimming object in that lake, the so-called Lake Champlain monster or champ. I've, I've interviewed dozens of people that have gone face-to-face -face with this, this, this critter. And I believe them. I believe they saw something. I don't think we're ever going to trap it. I don't think we're ever going to find a corpse. You know, you, know, you just raised a big issue, which I've talked to people about over the years. And I think my friend and colleague, Alan Greenfield, has been on the show a couple of times, may agree with me that all these mysteries may have the same source. So some people see UFOs. Some people see ghosts. 
Some people see leprechauns, for example. They see different creatures, but there is a fundamental mystery in our world that generates all this stuff. That's that's kind of where I'm at and have been at that spot for a while. I even I even wrote a novel called Deus Ex, the reality conspiracy, that postulates that very same thing. That those people who are researching UFOs, for example, really don't have much interest in the people that are hunting for ghosts. And the people who are doing ghost research are not really interested in those people who are doing Bigfoot research. But what if they're all from the same source? What would that source look like? Right, um, right. That's pretty much where where I am. I think they, may, they might be from the same source. I think things like the alleged miracle at Fatima may very well be the same as a, as a, as a champ sighting in Lake Champlain. Well, that, that event certainly sounds in many ways like a UFO sighting. It definitely yeah. fits the description of a UFO sighting. And there were how many witnesses? What is 50, 60, 70,000 people? Was thousands. It? Thousands. Yeah. Experiencing something at the same time. But from what I can recall, people didn't experience exactly the same thing. People saw different things, I guess, according to what their own religious persuasion might be. But they all agree that something happened in the sky. So is the source for this stuff, uh, when we say that these different types of paranormal phenomenon have a, a source that is shared, what is that source uh, internalized in us? Are these uh, some kind of psychological projections? Is it a natural phenomena that involves human sensory input devices stimulated by electromagnetic fields? I mean, what are we talking about here? Well, uh, all of the above. I, you see, I did a little ghost research for a while. I was kind of interested in doing what a lot of groups are doing right now, except I was maybe a little bit ahead of the curve because I started writing, oh, God, the early 90s. I started looking into this stuff. And I, I started by doing a little bit of what I would have called legitimate scientific research. I was doing research on site, and I was doing historical research in books. Mm-hmm. And what I decided was that whatever is happening we're not going to know it we're not going to, our our <laughs> the spectrum of our perception is just not grand enough to uh, to take it in whatever it is that's why we're still doing what let's say the spiritualists and psychic investigators were doing over 100 years ago we're we're, we're asking the same questions we're coming to the same answers and we're doing the same speculation i think it's unknowable i think it's something we can experience but not know Maybe I sound very much like a Catholic boy here because, uh, of course, in, in, in the Catholic Church there are mysteries. And I believe that's true. I believe there are mysteries. So do we waste our time in trying to seek answers, Joe? I mean, is this just a complete... Are we spinning in circles here? Well, I, I can only speak for myself, but I, I, I gave up on any kind of scientific research a long time ago. Remember my orientation to this material is from having written five novels, all of which are based in legitimate New England history and folklore. And I, I, and I just discovered that there were just too many stories to keep writing novels. I was never going to be able to keep up. So I took this detour into collecting, um, I guess, what you might call Fortean phenomena. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to, you know, I wanted some answers. I wanted to, to kind of prove that there was a monster in the lake, that there was a, a, you know, a saucer in the sky. I gave that up. 
but I continue to collect the stories because ultimately, to me, what I discovered is that the answer isn't important. What's important to me is the story. And at this point, I've, you know, I've just compiled hundreds of them. They're fascinating. But my orientation to the material is not as a scientist it's, or an investigator. It's as a, a folklorist or as a storyteller. Give us a working definition of the differentiation between folklore and history. You brought those two things up in, in one sentence. History, history is, is, is documented by historians in history books, and folklore is uh, truth that's passed along orally from generation to generation. For example, when I, when I started writing my first collection of, uh, of weird Vermont stories, I, I, I seeded it with, with stories my father had told me and believed to be true. That's folklore, really, the, you know, the, 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 the truth of the folks. What the folks believe. So should well, we call you a folklorist just as a title, or yeah. author, or whatever? Yeah, yeah. I battle all titles, I, including um, Ghostmaster General. I, just, I like I that one. Able, you know, that I haven't been able to find a label for myself, so so I, I resist all of them. You see, there when you talked about folklore, you used the word truth. It's a truth passed uh, orally, usually passed down through generations, whereas history is documented by the historians. But shouldn't we really say that history is documented by the historians who are often subsidized by a certain entity or set of entities that helps determine what is actually recorded? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. History is written by the winners, right? And, and there's a bias to all of it. For example, when I, growing up here in Vermont, when I was in what we call middle school, we learned as an absolute fact that there were no Native Americans ever in the state of Vermont. That this really? Was just kind of a, yeah, that's what we learned. That this was just open area. I guess they'd pass through from, from time to time, I guess presumably on the way to the tax-free malls in New Hampshire or something, but none, none, of, them, none of them lived here. We learned that. That was fact. Well, subsequently, historians, archaeologists, researchers have proven that's not true. Indians, Indians so-called, have been here for 10,000 years. There's no question. So sometimes fact uh, morphs a little. You know, we, we, we learn more, we add, we add to it. So history is, history is, is folklore, and folklore is history, I guess. Right, so that, that's, you know, at that point, which do, should we really put more value on? I mean, do we put value on the stories that have an economic hand in them, stirring them around? I mean, when we talk about even contemporary history, and we look at, I mean, just, just even, and not to take the show in the political direction, which mm -hmm. I always try to avoid doing, but... No I, I, politics, I no politics, no, no politics. No, seriously, if we look at the way that we've rewritten history, even in the last 40 years, you know, when Ronald Reagan died, at his funeral, they treated the man like he was a saint. Mm -hmm. He was canonized. And I think that, you know, ask any air traffic controller how they felt about that. And I'm sure you'd get a very different kind of opinion. You know, ask anybody uh, who was in a mental hospital during the 80s and was, was put out in the street because of Reagan policies. I mean, so just when we look at the way history has been rewritten in the last 40 years and the way it's been significantly distorted, now we expand this idea out to hundreds or thousands of years. 
you know, w- what makes more sense, Joe? Is it the folklore that's perhaps less tainted, or should we rely on the institutionalized indoctrination of history to be more of an objective arbiter of, of the truth, as it were? I think there's the third option, David, and that is just to remain skeptical about all things. I'm not talking about the sort of militant skepticism practiced by people like James the Amusing Randy or Michael Shermer, but just nurse an element of doubt about things. Don't necessarily believe it when you hear that there are men, <laughs> weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. More, <laughs> See, no more, politics. More, hey, more, okay, let's sure. bring it back. Let's bring it back to um, <laughs> the, <laughs> the subject or subjects in question. Take <laughs> Roswell. I know Roswell has been undergoing a fair amount of <laughs> scrutiny lately. But really, are are we any closer to finding out what happened there when we were um, back when um, I, I can't remember even the first book about the Roswell incident? But the but the point is, we're not William Moore and Stan sort of Freeman were, were guilty, I think, of Roswell quite. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. Hi, Gene Dave. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Here's our special offer. Because we love Gene and Dave and the Paracast, we are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for 19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for 19.99. Just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, PowerCast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five, or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y, California, 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1-888-UFO-6242. Leave me a message. I will call you back. Or if I'm in the office, I'll pick up and just say, hi, I'm a friend of Jeans and Dave's. I listen to the Paracast. Here's my special offer, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. 
You are the anarchist with Jesus and Ruby David the Eddie. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're talking to Joseph A. Citro, folklorist, paranormal writer, man about town from Vermont. <laughs> and by the way, I should tell you, when I worked in radio in Vermont, you know who I interviewed? None other than James, the amazing, or not so amazing. Yeah, I did. You know, this is yeah, he was here ago. quite recently giving, giving a lecture in Montpelier, which is just about 35 sure. miles from where I live. I couldn't make it. The thing about Randy is that I think that in many ways he serves a very valuable purpose. I think that some of the stuff he's debunked, I'd seen that footage when he debunked Uri Geller on television back in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was fantastic. He definitely did the right thing. At mm-hmm. the same time, when I go on to uh, his foundation's website, and I was looking up stuff on the web about Arigo, the uh, Brazilian... Right. Uh, surgeon with a rusty knife. The rusty knife. The entry on the Randy Foundation, um, on where, where, I forget the name of his foundation at the moment, but the entry about Arigo on their website is like one paragraph long. It states that because he had family members in town who were making some money off of what was going on with all these people coming into town, that he was a complete uh, hoax, that it was not real. And that flies in the face of every bit of research and the tremendous amount of writing and publicity that have been generated about Arigo, uh, the, the many witness testimonies about what he did. I mean, it just basically ignores, handily ignores all of this documentation that exists. So uh, what's the deal, Joe? Is a guy like uh, like the amazing Randy basically being paid to put this stuff to shame and and who's paying him to do this i i don't know but he seems to be surviving rather well yeah i don't know he must be going he must be going nuts right now because he is so much a a rationalist and a realist he's militantly that way and yet all around him these fires of the paranormal are growing i mean people more than ever people are, are 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 interested in ufos we've got in every single state we've got these multiple groups of people who are going around doing ghost investigations even here in tiny vermont with what a half a half a million total population we've probably got four groups of these so-called paranormal investigators or ghost hunters what's happening is essentially the same thing that was happening in 1850, I mean, the, the, the new crop of ghost investigators is simply the seance room all over again. You know, spiritualism is, is growing again. So Randy, Randy must be going nuts. The religious fervor, the, the attention to UFOs, the new spiritualism. I don't know. Yeah, he, I think he does serve a purpose, but uh, I, I, I find him pretty amusing, actually. Do we need this obligatory critic, or can we find a better house critic to deal with this stuff? I think until we develop that skepticism and and criticism in each of us, we probably need him to keep the spirit of doubt and skepticism alive. I think Shermer's the same way. I think Joe Nickel is the same way. These guys are all extremists, admittedly. They're every bit as as much ideologues as are the, uh, the, the Christian fundamentalists, but... I think we need them. I think there's, it's the dialectic. They're the, they're the sort of anti-matter to matter. I mean, when I saw Shermer on the Larry King show make the statement mm-hmm. that uh, pilots 
Air Force and airline pilots were no more qualified to make observations about aerial phenomena than the typical citizen. I mean, he went on record and said this, yeah. that their word was not to be taken any more seriously than Joe Schmo with a six-pack standing on a street corner. That is completely irresponsible, and it's just, it's absolutely wrong. How can it, How can somebody say that well, with a face? Do you think anyone believed them? I mean, I, I, it seems to me that I, I didn't see the broadcast. I've heard about it, but uh, it seems to me that he kind of stomped on his own foot with that one. I suppose so. I, when it comes to UFO stuff, uh, it seems to me that people pretty much come into it with their minds made up. You know, nobody mm -hmm. can convince anybody of anything if they already have their 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 mind made up about the issue and. Really, uh, the only thing that makes someone change their mind is either something like a direct experience or a family member having a direct experience. And even then, you don't know what's going to happen. You don't. And, and it's, I think people who haven't had, had experiences simply haven't been in the right place at the right time. And I think some of us probably blunder through life without ever having a really uh, dramatic confrontation with the, the supernatural. I've had very few. I, I think if uh, having these experiences is dependent on psychic ability, then I think my psychic IQ is probably pretty low, my, my psyQ, I guess you could call it. Because I've only had like maybe two experiences in my whole life that by any stretch of the imagination could be called paranormal. And yet, I don't use that lack of experience to refute other people's experience. I'm really eager to hear about it and to learn what I learn what I can from people who are experiencers. I'm particularly interested in the solitary experiencer. Um, I know in terms of science, science, we want multiple witnesses. I'm kind of interested in the sorts of things that happen to people in in private. There's this wonderful story, for example, that, that took place here in Vermont in in 1843, which is before the era of American spiritualism, this woman from the town of Bristol, Vermont, looked up into the sky one day and saw two black figures floating around in the sky. And when they took notice of her, they morphed into recognizable religious icons that she identified as probably being God and Jesus. And she told, they, they told her that the end of the world was coming and she had to get out and tell people that they had to pray more. You know, the, the, the typical religious message. Unfortunately, whatever these things were, had targeted a very shy, timid Vermont farm woman. So in spite of those instructions, she didn't do anything. She didn't go and alert her neighbors. And she knew, she knew she wasn't following orders, but she just couldn't bring herself to rap on somebody's door and say the end of the world is coming. So finally, she visited her minister, the Congregationalist minister, the Reverend Calvin Butler, and told him the whole story. And he had sense enough, luckily, to write it down word for word. Mm -hmm. So we have a record of it, and I discovered that one day. Now, that's fascinating to me. There's, that's not like any of the religious visions that people people were having in the 19th century. This, this black to white transformation is completely unprecedented. One wonders what she saw, if she saw anything. But she was alone when it happened, and that makes it, for some reason, that makes it more interesting to me. Now, you brought it up, so uh, you can't oh, yeah. blame us for this, but you mentioned that you've had in your life two things that you would categorize as falling into the bucket of paranormal experiences. Could you uh, share 
some of the details? Well, you, uh, sure, I'd be happy to. They're, they're not very dramatic stories compared to what happened to Melissa Warner in, in Bristol and compared to some of the things that have happened to other people. One of the things happened probably around the year 2000 and was here in my home, and I started hearing a, a, a loud, high-pitched whine. And I couldn't figure out what the hell it was. So I, I went to the window and to see if it was a siren or somebody's car alarm was going off or something like that. And I couldn't make any kind of visual connection with the sound. And then walked into my kitchen and realized that's where the sound was coming from. And I looked on the counter next to my sink and there was a glass on the counter that was revolving very rapidly, almost like a top, a spinning top. It was revolving very rapidly, and it was producing the sound, and all of a sudden, it just exploded. And I have no possible explanation for that. The dishwasher wasn't on. None of the other dishes on the counter were vibrating. And yet this thing was spinning so rapidly, and it was, it was kind of on its edge, spinning kind of like a top. And I heard it first, and then I saw it. It, it actually happened. I don't know if I can convince you guys it happened, but I have the shards of glass to prove it. It didn't break the way a glass would if you threw it on the ground. It broke in little squares, little squares of glass. Hmm. Yeah, no explanation. My neighbor is a scientist, and I consulted him about it because he knows, um, in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, that I'm perfectly sane. And he, he um, went over the whole thing with me, and he said, you know, sometimes there are these uh, these singular events, and they won't won't conform to the scientific method. Aha. I mean, look at that right across the board. Look at that with ghosts and UFOs and everything. We can't get these phenomena to conform to scientific method. So I don't think science is really the way to solve these mysteries. Well, maybe existing science, because science is always expanding and growing, and there are so many aspects of reality we don't understand, and part of it is just a limit of our current instrumentation. Part of it is the fact that we, we, we haven't uncovered all of the secrets of the universe. I mean, it, it's a little silly to assume for a moment that, given the fact that, you know, as one example, we don't really know what's at the core of this planet. We don't, we have theories. We know that for the magnetic fields to be generated, there has to be some kind of liquid metal, preferably iron, moving around as some kind of uh, flow at a certain depth in the, uh, you know, underneath of the Earth's crust. But, Ultimately, um, we, we don't really know these things. We, we don't really know where our moon came from. We have theories. We don't really know a lot of stuff. We don't really know about the most basic aspects of the nature of matter. We have theories at this point. We have physicists right at the edge of research. I mean, the string theory people, they're considered by many of standard physicists to be like the lunatic fringe. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to me like that's always been true about science, though. I mean, when Tesla was first showing the stuff that he was doing to people, I mean, you know, to imagine him at the Pan American Convention with lightning bolts shooting out of his fingers. I mean, people must have looked at him and thought, this guy is a witch doctor. <laughs> like, what the hell is this? Well, well, they're still making that theory about Tesla, aren't they? Aren't they saying yeah. He, yeah. But, but I think, in, in a way, you're, you're talking about science in, in, in different ways. I mean, to, to some degree, you're talking about discovery. Mm-hmm. And what I'm talking about is the, the scientific method, getting, getting things 
to be repeatable. And and I I don't think these things. My guess is they'll never be repeatable. I mean, if I if I if I have a vision of the Lake Champlain monster today, I could spend the rest of my life sitting in the same spot, staring vapidly out at the lake, and it's never going to happen again. It's never going to happen every Tuesday at 310 precisely. Do you know what I mean? Whatever these things are, and I tend to want to lump them all together, whatever they are, they just don't play by our rules. But you know, it's interesting. What's also interesting is the way they act, where they tell somebody, we're going to show up at 3 p.m., and they take people along for this ride for a few times, and then they create the ultimate event. And so that person, the victim, shall we say, calls all his friends in the newspapers, whatever, and says there will be this huge event where the space people, the ghosts, whatever they are, will reveal themselves. And, of course, what happens? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing. It's like, it's like the great celestial practical joke. Yeah, to the Goblin Universe, as Ted Holliday called it. G.K. Chesterton said something like he, he dabbled with Ouija boards and spiritualism and things like that. And he, he came away and said something like, you know, the only thing I can say with certainty about the mystic and invisible power is that it lies. That kind of sums up the way I feel that you, you, know, you just can't trust the evidence. Today, whether you're in business or simply want to share something with friends or family, email and voicemail sometimes just aren't enough. That's why you should try GoToMeeting, a web conferencing solution that will revolutionize how you communicate with your business associates, family, and friends. The ability to host online meetings is an absolute must for today's business. With GoToMeeting.com, it's just like you're all in the same room. Unlimited meetings for one flat rate means you can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. Try it yourself, free for 30 days. Just visit gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. That's gotomeeting.com forward slash tech podcasts. Try GoToMeeting free today. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me just tell our listeners, you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney and Joseph A. Citro, folklorist, paranormal investigator, man about town who in the Orient discovered the power to cloud men's minds so they cannot see him. Now, that's, that's someone named Lamont. Forget it. See how old I am, Joseph? The shadow. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to state that um, I think there's this rule of the paranormal. Right. That for every bit of evidence and proof, there's an equal and opposite bit of denial and debunking. I think it's just that way. Roswell, I think, is just a perfect example. I think it's a perfect example. We just can't dig out the truth of that. It's so embedded in the, uh, it's it's so iconic, it's so mythic at this point that people are going to continue to investigate and find out nothing. Let's see. Let's wait and see. You know, there's one thing that's common, you know, we see in a lot of these fields where the creatures, the entities, the beings tell the experiencer something like, Mm. you know, of course, they come from Zeta Reticuli. If you ask Betty Hill, (laughs) if you ask George Adamski, they came from Venus or Mars Mm -hmm. or, or, you know, whatever it is. And, of course, we also learn that, you know, they believe it, but... Who cares what they say? It's always going to be wrong. Yeah. 
I think George Adamski was really my my introduction to this whole thing because I had a a sixth grade teacher that somehow locked on to my interest in the bazaar, and he gave me one of Adamski's books. I, I'm not I'm not even sure which one it was. Is it one called The Coming of the Flying Saucers? Is that one of his? Anyway, there were pictures, photographs. The Coming was Ray Palmer and of mm-hmm. course Kenneth Arnold. Yeah, but this is the one where he's talking to ta- talking about these elegant Venusians out in the middle of the desert, and there are pictures of of, of kind of clunky looking flying saucers. Flying saucers have landed by Desmond Leslie, Part One. Oh yeah, George Adamson, Part it. Two. And yeah. Desmond Leslie was writing about ancient astronauts years before Eric von Daniken got into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I sort of believed that stuff when I first read it, but there was. Somewhere in my mind, there was this this kind of built-in governor that said, "Well, wait a minute, don't grab onto this too too quickly. There's something fishy about this." I never I never could really grasp it. I could never really say, "Yeah, this is mine. This is truth." It's the same it's the same problem I had with religion. I found that it was just too unbelievable. I couldn't I couldn't embrace it as truth, and. Um, I still have that problem. So my choice is I, I just don't believe anything. I take in the evidence, I make up it what I can, and I record the stories. And it's well, some great stories. Well, let's talk about this for a minute, Joe. You, you bring up a really critical point, which is that here we've got this thing called religion, and we look at organized religion, and we have basically uh, this set of paranormal stories that has remained alive for thousands of years, and it has really been the in many ways the primary filter or shaper of so much of human perception why is it that these stories have had such sticking or staying power and why are other paranormal stories seen as being so much fringier what is that well i'm not really sure that i can answer that i i don't think there's a lot of agreement about um cores of commercial religion for example if you if you drive through any new england small town you'll see half a dozen churches of slightly varying denomination i mean we we as a species can't even decide how to uh, how to worship our alleged god the one thing that they all have in common i think is the mystery and each of them chooses to define the mystery in his or her own way uh, it's interesting that Mormonism should. Uh, Joseph Smith is was from was from Vermont, and he moved west to uh, New York with his parents when he had his experience, where he allegedly found the golden tablets. Um, he was steered to them by the angel Moroni, and and Joseph Smith was able to decipher the hieroglyphics on the on the golden tablets because he was wearing special glasses. That through through which he could discern what was written on the golden tablets. Well, where are those golden tablets now? Uh, well, he, he buried them again, I guess, and Maloney took them back. Where are the glasses that have permitted him to read read the tablets? Well, those are gone too. But the story is still there, and thousands and thousands of people believe it. Doesn't that sound like a UFO story? Oh, yeah, no, the entire uh, state of Utah is pretty much built up around that story. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, and we have a Republican presidential candidate that comes from that belief system. Chicken Romney. That Chicken Romney guy, right? <laughs> I don't, know, I, I, I don't I, like I the mushrooms in it. Yeah, no, Chicken Romney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Okay, politics, ladies and gentlemen. Politics no, alert. No, no, politics alert. Politics, Mormonism and Chicken Romney. His name, his full name is Chicken. Is a Chicken, Chicken Little Romney? Stu Potato Romney. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you said something before, Joe. I found really interesting. You said that. Here we have these entities or these beings, and they're saying to people, oh, bring your friends by, I'll reappear. This, yeah. uh, and, you know, of course, nothing is there. So this then sounds like we have the old cosmic trickster, the entities that seem to derive some pleasure or maybe even some sort of sustenance yeah. from, from messing around with human beings. I mean, is that just another expression of vanity, though? If they're interdimensional beings that can do these things, why mess with us? Are we that interesting? Maybe it's fun. Maybe it's fun to mess with people. <laughs> I mean, there, there, there are hoaxers and deceivers on the human side. Um, maybe, maybe those those ethereal beings just just kind of get a kick out of it. Maybe, like the Greeks believe, they're kind of playing chess with us. I don't know, and I don't think I'm capable of knowing, and I don't think anybody knows. And I think as soon as people start telling you that they know, watch out. I favor the, the, the cosmic trickster, cosmic joker idea. That pleases me because it says everything does not have to have a neat, tidy explanation, and, and it retains the element of mystery. Well, we're not looking for neat, tidy explanations. We, we'd be very happy with some messy, chaotic explanations. <laughs> yes, messy and chaotic is my middle name, by the way. You know, I never got a middle name. When I was born, my parents said, okay, it's Gene, it's Steinberg, middle name. My brother said, don't give him a middle name. My older brother. Dumpling. So, middle name is Dumpling. They said Dumpling. No, no, Actually, messy and chaotic. That's it. There you go. No, but seriously, I mean... I guess what I'm really getting at here is to try to figure out whether or not Gene and I are just absolutely burning our time up and losing our lives doing the Paracast. If if you think, Joe, that we're never going to get to any answers about any of this stuff, if you think it's not even possible to arrive at any understanding, then is this just the equivalent of mental masturbation? Is it? <laughs> well, I, I guess my palms are pretty hairy then because, uh, you know, that's that's exactly the position I take that we're never going to know that these are going to remain mysteries as they always have been. But the, uh, for me, the reward is in collecting the stories. I don't think you and Gina are wasting your time at all. You're involved in a forum that gives you access to the people who are really trying to solve this stuff. Uh, the people are really involved in research. They're really digging into in, into Roswell and into the pyramids and uh, all the other mysteries that fill the Fordian tomes. So I don't think you're wasting your time at all. You're giving them a voice. You're putting yourself in a position where you can be educated by, by these people that most of us don't even have access to. You guys have done some wonderful, wonderful interviews. They're fantastic interviews. I love listening to them. So I don't oh think you're wasting time. Keep it up. Keep me in the show. Oh, God. Mm. All right, so Joe, it's you. It's my girlfriend that listens to the show. It's uh, it's Gene. I don't listen to the show. See, that's the <laughs> so. Well, Jim Mosley doesn't a, listen to the show because he hasn't got a computer. Jim Mosley has a whole set of other problems besides <laughs> that we can't get into right now. By the way, <laughs> on a future episode, the Paracast, the man who is going to replace Jim Mosley when Jim Mosley hangs up his shingle or his 
his Spurs and doesn't do saucer smear, his successor is going to come on the Billy show. Billy Carter's dead, though. Billy Carter will not be doing this, though. Are we going to, are we going to interview Billy Carter from Beyond the Grave? No. Not even Chris Carter from X-Files, but you never know. <laughs> no, come on. And, and by, this is not about Jim Mosley's replacement. This is about Joseph A. Citro. So get it straight, Gene. I have it. I have it. I'm, I'm, I'm just straightening it out right now. Hold on a second. There we go. It's all straight. Go ahead. Oh, that's good. Oh, wait. So, Joe, you're replacing Jim Mosley? Well, I'm just offering that as a possibility. Well, that's another possibility, but not, <laughs> I don't think Stop so. Stop it, guys. All right. Now, let's get back to talking about the stuff that we're not going to have any answers to, paranormal stuff. So, Joe, you live in Vermont. You've been looking into strange things in Vermont. Tell us your absolute favorite story of something weird in Vermont. What's at the top of your list? Yeah. I have have two competing stories that that I I just love. One took place in Windsor, Vermont, where the state of Vermont was actually born uh, back in the 50s. And it was the home of the local physician. And one day, for no reason, water started to appear all over his house. And kitchen cabinets and the bowls, glasses, they filled up. The clothes in the closets were, like, dripping with water. In the first two days, I think they cleaned up something like 13 buckets of water, but nobody could figure out the source of the water, and it just kept coming. The Claremont, New Hampshire Daily Eagle, I think it was called, sent over a reporter to get to the bottom of things, and he reported that sometimes it even rained inside the house. This went on for, I think, pretty close to a month, and got so severe that they had to leave. And then, after a while... For no apparent reason, it just stopped. It just, everything just returned to normal. It stopped as suddenly as it had started. And uh, this was after a parade of experts from from plumbers to dowsers had, you know, had, had tried to determine the source of the water. And it just stopped. It kind of reinforces the idea of the cosmic trickster because the name of the guy was Dr. Waterman. Now, this, this story, you know, I, I set this story up with the punchline, but the fact is it happened. I talked to one of his daughters who was there while it happened. I talked to a guy whose father had been the first plumber on the scene, and he said that his father had been troubled the rest of his life because he wasn't able to find where the water was coming from, and water in that house simply did not conform to the, the rules that he had learned when he was getting his master's license. There's no question this happened. But, you know, what happened? Why? What, extreme what condensation? I, I mean, what are we talking about here? We're talking about a glass full of water, a pot full of water, water that so saturates the clothes in the closet that, you, that, that they're unwearable, so saturates the mattress on the bed that you can't sleep on it. We're talking about very, very lot of water. And I don't know what we're talking about, and it's unsolved. The doctor issued a press release saying the problem had been solved, but it hadn't been solved. It just stopped. He just wanted to cut off not only the flow of the water, but the flow of curiosity seekers, because people were just lining up on his street wanting to get a look at this. Some people gave it religious significance. You know, mm. Some people just saw it as, as, as something unexplained. But it's, it's one of those weird things that is not typical of the spectrum of paranormal phenomena. I mean, it's not a, it's not a monster sighting, it's not a Bigfoot sighting, it's not a ghost. It's, it comes closest, if we want to find a classification for it, the closest thing that we can come up with, I think, is probably poltergeist. 
but there were none of the other phenomena that we typically associate with poltergeists. There were a couple of adolescent females on the grounds, but um, mm -hmm. I think that's part of an outdated definition of poltergeist. So that, that's one of my favorite stories. I love that story. I'll tell you and what, I, before we hear the second story... Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, folklorist, paranormal author Joseph A. Citro joining us for an entire show this evening. And now, your second favorite story, or is it, say, rate equally with the other one? Well, it depends what day you talk to me, I guess. My second favorite story, I guess, has to do with a couple of brothers, William and Horatio Eddy, who lived in the little mountain town of Chittenden. And back in the 1870s, they were holding a series of seances upstairs in their farmhouse, during which they were somehow able to materialize three-dimensional phantoms. And these phantoms were so realistic and so recognizable that people were traveling from all around the world to visit these seances. In fact, the town of Chittenden for a while was was known as the spirit capital, not of Vermont, not of the U.S., but the spirit capital of the universe because of the, the, the um, manifestations that were occurring here. In 1874, a New York newspaper decided to dispatch a reporter to come up to Vermont and get to the bottom of things. This was a guy named Henry Steele Alcott. Was a lawyer, and he had been a he had been he had been a, a military detective who had rooted out. Oh, well, what do you call it when the when private corporations make a lot a lot of money on warfare? That that particular type of corruption is what he discovered. That is called business as usual. Yeah, business as usual. Overruns, bribery, yeah. thievery, the normal way that the government runs. Yeah. <laughs> That's politics again, Gene. He came up to uh, figure out if they were tricksters or if they were on the level. He spent nine weeks hmm. studying these phenomena, and he brought in architects and designers to go look over the house with him to see if there are any secret compartments or anything like that. And at the end of that period, he said that there was definitely something supernatural going on. He wasn't sure if they were the spirits of the dead, but that these brothers, the Eddie brothers, had some sort of supernatural ability. And now, when you second say, favorite one. Well, let's get some details about that show. Sure. You say three-dimensional entities, and what sort of things we're hearing? Alcott is the best source. He actually wrote the series of newspaper articles, and he actually wrote a, a book chronicling the whole thing. He would see three-dimensional objects, people, 
sometimes they were transparent, sometimes apparently they were only partially materialized, sometimes they appeared to be um, regular, solid, three-dimensional people. What was fascinating is that people would recognize among the phantoms deceased friends and relatives. These phantoms allegedly carried on conversations in no fewer than six foreign languages. If the brothers were faking it, they would have had to be conversant in more than English, and apparently they weren't all that articulate in their, their native tongue. Apparently these guys were really rustics. Interestingly, the, the, the culmination of all this is it was in that house in Chittenden where Madame Helena Blavatsky, visiting oh. from New York, mm -hmm. she met Colonel Alcott in that house, and then they went off and founded Theosophy. So this this resonated then. I mean, this there this it's almost as if maybe these occurrences were designed to foster that. Well, it, it, it seems strangely coincidental, doesn't it, that he's there to to debunk and investigate, and mm -hmm. she's there as a mystic, recently returned to the U.S. after after her travels in the Himalayas or wherever it was she was. She was off to. She, they both came there for the same reason, to see the apparitions. Uh, I take it there were a lot of witnesses to this? I mean, there, there, a lot of people had been in the house seeing these things? There were hundreds, hundreds of witnesses. I, I've collected um, over the years a lot of 19th century newspapers that described the events. And they all describe them in pretty much the same way except some of them say it's on the level and others say it's trickery, even though no one was able to expose if it was trickery, how it was done. Do you know of anything that would be comparable to this today, Joe? Is there any such comparable situation where there is repeated manifestations that in any way sound similar to this? None that I know of or have direct experience with. I know there are places in this country that people visit and can and can pretty dependably have like UFO sightings or, or or something like that. These people were called materialization mediums, and I don't think spiritualism does that anymore. I think even if you go to spiritualist communities like uh, like Lilydale in New York State, and there's another one in Florida. I can't remember its name. I think the mediums are not not bringing the three-dimensional phantoms anymore. Do you think, and, or do you consider as a possibility what John Keel said many years ago about window areas around the world where paranormal events seem to take place within that structure? When you go there, you say well, you, maybe you're investigating a UFO. But if you dig deep, suddenly it's not just UFOs. It's poltergeist phenomena, ghosts, mm -hmm. whatever. Everything's happening there. I, I've always liked that notion. I like to read John Keel. I've, I, I read, you know, at, at one time or another, I read all this stuff, and it seems to me that he, he, he does some pretty good thinking. I, th I find kind of some of his documentation a little bit frustrating because it's not there, but um, it seems to me he does some pretty colorful and kind of eccentric thinking about stuff, and the whole notion of window areas is one that I kind of want to glom onto because it really does seem that way, and it seems like we have a few here in Vermont, a few so-called window areas, and one of them is, of course, over and possibly under Lake Champlain. There's another area near here, Alstow, Vermont, where there's a, a covered bridge that is allegedly haunted. But things there are not 
confined to hauntings. I mean, there are there are orbs sighted and strange voices coming out of nowhere. And you can go there, and it's pretty possible you can experience something. But this is maybe a mini window area. There's a story about a girl dying on the bridge. I sort of think that the story is not true. I think a lot of weird stuff happened around this bridge, and somebody, or maybe a series of people, created the story of the dead girl and kind of retrofit it to explain all the weird occurrences around the bridge. There's another one, another one in Vermont, down in the southern part of Vermont, around Bennington, called Glastonbury Mountain. That's long had a had a history for mysterious occurrences. This too would be a window area. Back in the eight, late 18th and 19th century, people were seeing monsters there, and we look at those descriptions and we think they're describing Bigfoot, but of course they they didn't use that that term back then. But interestingly, just Within the last couple of years, there have been a lot of Bigfoot sightings in the same same general area. People vanish on that mountain. I think between 1945 and 1950, depending on whose count you want to use, there were between 6 and 11 people who just sort of stepped off the face of the earth down in the area of Glastonbury Mountain. They just vanished and never reappeared. It's not something where they and, just fell uh, off the mountain and were lost in the brush below or something. Yeah, they, they rolled down to uh, Massachusetts and were never seen again. Well, that's always a good excuse. Yeah. Uh, window areas is a very convenient term, and I think there are places that are more full of paranormal activity than others. Is this a scoop on the Skinwalker Ranch, for example? Oh, yeah. Is that on the level or not? I don't uh, know. That's, that's a very enticing example of a window area, isn't it? Well, it's certainly the area had a long history with the Native Americans who lived there, that there was weird stuff going on. You know, as you're talking about that, what, what occurs to me is an idea that maybe what's really going on in these window areas is that these are places where the Earth's magnetic field does strange things. Mm -hmm. And knowing that the brain is basically one big electrochemical computer, I start to wonder if... It, and, and we know that with certain things, like if you have a strong RF field, this is going to have a potentially a pretty strong psychological effect on people who are subject to that field. Maybe what's really going on here is we have areas of concentrated magnetic activity, maybe uh, entropic magnetic activity that have some kind of an interaction with brain chemistry of people who are present so that they, as far as they know, they're hearing things, they're seeing things. And I guess at that point, the only way to verify or, or debunk this would be to see if, let's say in the case of Bigfoot sightings, are there pieces of trace physical evidence on the ground? Do you find, you know, branches broken and footprints that then bring it out of the realm of observation or you know, perception to actual physical occurrence. I want to glom onto that, David, and that is, do you think then that we're just seeing illusions created by some interaction with these electromagnetic waves or whatever. I think that's that, that, that's certainly a possibility. There, there's the whole concept of tulpas, which are just concentrations of thought forms. There was a, an interesting play. Um, no, I guess it was a movie that was made during the 1960s, authored by a guy named Nigel Neal, a British guy, very imaginative science, science fiction writer. And the, the, the movie was called The Stone Tape. And it was about a bunch of so-called paranormal investigators who went to an especially haunted castle. And yeah, as soon as they got in there, they started seeing seeing ghosts and experiencing weird phenomena. 
And the, the solution was that impressions of things past had somehow embedded themselves in the stone, the very rock of the castle. And certain people were able to play it back. It was like recording on a, on a tape or a recording medium and then playing it back through the psychic ability or the minds or brain chemistry of the people that were there. It seemed like a fascinating idea to me, and it's kind of like what you're talking about, David, that uh, there's some, something external that's having its way with brain chemistry. I know there was this guy in Toronto who was ex experimenting with that, trying to stimulate people with electrodes to reproduce the abduction experience. Have you ever read about that guy? He's, yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. Um, there's been a bunch of research about that even recently that's come forward where yeah 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 the the whole sense of uh everything from astral projection to the uh sense that there are entities watching um you know and then we have things like the study of the uh the drug DMT which uh, seems to invoke a shared experience of these interdimensional beings attempting to contact the person who's under the influence of the DMT. You know, the minute we start to enter in those realms, of course, I always get a little concerned because when you start to mess around with brain chemistry to that extent, the idea of taking a hallucination and dubbing it as reality, it's rocky territory. It gets to the point where you start to realize that, yes, indeed, our brains are an electrochemical computer that, that is attached to our sensory input devices, our ears, our eyes, our, uh, our noses, our mouths, our fingers, our skin. Um, and when you look at all of this, you realize that, yes, indeed, we are these imperfect transceivers of reality that based on anything as simple as how much sugar did you eat that morning how much caffeine did you ingest you know this will completely mess with your perception of reality when, when i this summer went to buenos aires argentina i found that there is a um, there's a drink that the argentinians really enjoy uh, it's very very popular in argentina in uruguay and paraguay and apparently parts in chile it's called yerba mate and it's it's considered basically to be kind of like what coffee is here in the states it, it, it's interesting you go into a restaurant you don't really see mate on the menu but every restaurant has it it's a, a a plant i guess it's related to the holly family and they dry the leaves the stems and basically you put it in a mate gourd and you put almost boiling water in it and you drink it out of this uh, metal straw called a bombilla and the thing about it is that it's I think something like 92% of all people, for example, in Argentina, drink this every day. And I can tell you that uh, one of the, the doctors I went to go see while I was down there, the dermatologist, she had the, the receptionist gal prepare me some yerba mate. It's a, it's a whole sort of a social convention down there to drink mate with people who you're friendly with. And um, I had some of this stuff. And I got to tell you, I found it to be very psychoactive. It, it, it was not just like a caffeine boost. Things looked a little different. And I thought to myself, here is this, this substance that is being used by some vast majority of the people down there. It's clearly having some kind of a psychoactive effect on me. 
Uh, you know, how does this then sort of skew the perception of an entire nation? Hey, before has- we pursue that question, because that's a really interesting question, a very fascinating possibility, we're going to break for the hour and be back with Joseph Citro, folklorist, paranormal investigator on the Paracast. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at on part two of the Paracast with Joseph A. Citro, author, lecturer, commentator on the paranormal and folklore, and David posed a large question about this beverage, this national beverage in Argentina, mm-hmm. about the effects of it. And what did you think, Joe? Well, I, I'm wondering where he was going with that. Was he? We was the. Was the extension of that, like, how is this na- nation affected by its coffee consumption or something? I mean, where, where, no, where, were, just, you, where, where were you going well, with that? Where I was going with it was that it just seems to me like in trying to understand the nature of our reality that we often don't really understand even the most basic aspects of our brain chemistry and what our brains are capable of. We know that, you know, science fiction and fantasy have taught us all about the potential of the brain. And again, we come back to the limitations of our own understanding. We don't really understand a lot of about what our brains are about, about how our brains function. We don't understand so much about how our brains interact with a large variety of chemicals. So, you know, in looking at, looking at like these hot spots around the world, it seems to me like there there are so many potential explanations for why these places do seem to be active, and and again, I think it's some sort of a dance between what these spots are in terms of electromagnetic activity and in the Earth's magnetic field, whatever substances are in these regions, and one of the things that comes up again and again in ghost situations and and, and ghost sightings is that a lot of these areas are heavy in limestone deposits. That limestone seems to be some kind of a, almost a conductor, if you would, uh, of these types of energies. And then you, you, you mix into all of this the incredibly strange things that go on in our brains. And uh, maybe you're right, Joe. Maybe we can't understand really the truth of so much of the paranormal world because of the fact that at any given moment, it turns out that things that happen are a specific set of brain chemistry configurations, magnetic field configurations, uh, mix in cultural perceptions and expectations. And when you stir all of this together... You get a variety of paranormal episodes that truly aren't reproducible because you can't reproduce all of these before-mentioned elements in the exact same uh, ratios at the exact same moment. And that ultimately may be really truly the Earth, the universe, well, I don't know, maybe maybe the philosophers are right. Maybe uh, everything is an illusion. I don't well, believe Gene exists either. I think Gene is actually a big chocolate bar. I'm actually your worst nightmare, my friend. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think, Jim? I mean, you've been looking into stuff for so long. Is there well, any... I, 
I stay right on the fence until I either see some proof or have an experience that is myself that's completely convincing one way or another. I think the experiences are either external, completely internal, or there's kind of a partnership between the external and the and the internal. But beyond that, I don't know. You're talking about limestone. The uh, the early psychic investigators postulated the same thing, but about water. And when I recently, when I've been talking to people in in so-called haunted houses, I would just routinely ask them, well, is there is there a well in the basement? Is there a stream, an underground stream under your house? And sure enough, uh, first law of the paranormal, sometimes yes, sometimes no. Couldn't pin it down. For every bit of evidence, there's an equal and opposite bit of non-evidence. In the beginning, I really wanted to have experiences, so I would put myself in harm's way. I would I would spend the night in, in supposedly haunted houses all by myself and things like that. And I think I, I, was, uh, I was telling you, David, about the, the time I had this literary agent who wanted me to uh, do a book with Ed and Lorraine Warren, who are the you know, the champion ghost hunters in, in, in New England, I guess. But that seemed like a pretty good idea because I thought, well, you know, these, these, these guys are the experts. I'm going to get my proof here. Sure. Spending sure. some time with them and I'm going to write this book. So I, I drove from Burlington, Vermont, down to Monroe, Connecticut, and spent, I spent about a week with Ed and Lorraine Warren. And it was a, a very interesting week. First of all, I would have to say they're really, interpersonally, they're very, very nice people. And Ed Warren is probably the, the most fascinating storyteller I've ever run into. I mean, he had me believe in stuff when he was telling it to me. But there was also a comic element because we'd be sitting in their, in their, in their kitchen at the table and Ed Warren would be telling me stories and Lorraine would be kind of fussing around in the kitchen in the background and Ed would be talking about, and there's this curse statue and it just exploded in the priest's hand and he turned around to Lorraine and said, could you bring me another couple of those chocolate chip cookies? And it was, it was just, it just kind of went on and on. And I said to him, Ed, you know, you, you, if I'm going to do this book with you, I got to have some proof that these demons and ghosts are really there. Now you've shown me pictures of things floating around the room, but if I'm going to write this, I got to see some of that stuff. So what, I, what I'd like you to do is next time, next time you have a case, call me up. I'll get right in the car. Four hours later, I'll be on your doorstep, and we can go and we can watch stuff float around. Well, Fair do you enough. think I ever heard from him? No. Mm. And the, and, and the book that they wanted me to write was not a bit of investigative journalism when it, where I go into a haunted house. They simply wanted me to ghostwrite a book for Ed and Lorraine, because I guess because they don't really write themselves. And I had this feeling about it all, that there was Ed and Lorraine, and there were these people known as the Snedekers who were having trouble with demons in their house. I just had this feeling that there was some charlatanism going on somewhere. I don't know if it was with the Warrens. I don't know if it was the Snedekers. But I just knew I didn't really want to want to be a part of it. So I, I just got out of there. You might say that I fled. And the mm -hmm. book that I was going to write with them was, was actually written by another author, a guy by the name of Ray Garten. And it came out with the title, In the Dark Place. So the book actually exists. I didn't do it. And I really came away doubting this whole this whole kind of Warren approach to, uh, to spiritualism and ghosts and things like that. Because this guy had an answer. Like, we've been groping all over the place, but what are these phenomena? Ed Warren knew. Lorraine Warren knows. 
They're demons. These people are just like the early Puritans. They see demons behind every bush. And um, you guys know, couldn't buy into it. And they just were not forthcoming with any sort of any sort of proof. They just wanted to tell me things and have me report them as if they were real. So I can't help but wonder just how much of that goes on in the paranormal community, as it were. Just blindly. You know, we had uh, Lorraine Warren on the show last year, Joe, and we were talking with her. A really interesting woman. Very nice lady. Very nice lady. I had a number of conversations with her on the phone before she came on to sort of prep her for, you know, what we were about. I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what I felt about the Warrens. And, and I knew that Ed, of course, has passed. Mm-hmm. He's no longer with us. So uh, Lorraine Warren just seemed like someone who had good stories and who had done a bunch of work in the field. And when we had her on the show, and I'm going to paraphrase this. I know I'm going to mess this up, but at one point, she was talking about you know, these demons, these dark forces, being outside of God, being, you know, they're not of God. Mm-hmm. And, and, I, and I confronted her on this. I said, now, wait a minute. If you really believe in this notion of the universe and everything in it being created by God, then how can you take the this phenomena that, you know, you've got these, these beings and you're saying they're not of God? Well, what does that mean exactly? You're trying to say that... God made everything but these things. These things somehow are intruding on God's space. It's like, well, now wait a minute. That doesn't. There's no internal logic there. That makes no sense. And yeah, you know, I asked. Somebody pulled off another another creation over in New Hampshire. <laughs> well, I mean, well, it's it's God created everything. If you want to, if you want to go by that particular worldview, and and right. the demons uh, were, were started off as angels, as I understand it. Right. Um, right. They Satan is like the, they the favorite son. Yeah, fa- Satan mm-hmm. is the, the favorite son that falls out of favor and gets back at humans because he's jealous of mm-hmm. the idea that humans are now God's most beloved. You know, you start to look at all this, and, and of course, what it brings me to is that all of this is just human vanity. It's humans wanting to be the center of attention. And so, well, you know, the, the God made us to look like him, and, you know, God has an ass. Yeah, whatever. I, I start to, you know, that stuff is just ridiculous. Yeah. Well, that's blasphemous, David. But, but I, I, what I'm, what I, what I'm trying to... Rabbi's going to call in a moment, and he's going to really talk to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. What, right. what, I, what I'm trying to address here, I think, is the contagious nature of this kind of material. And I think like Ed and Lorraine Warren really infected a lot of people with this kind of alternate belief system. I think they are in part responsible for this renaissance of, of paranormal and ghost investigators that we're seeing all over the television and all over the radio and all over the iPod. I think a lot of it goes right back to Ed and Lorraine Warren and these these stories that they told and maybe the experiences that they had. I don't know. I don't know. I can't say that those experiences are are real. I really wanted to be able to say that, but I, I, could, I couldn't. You know, I'm willing to lump them in with the great unknown. Maybe there are demons. Who knows? Maybe the trickster sometimes poses as a demon. We just don't know. But these people took the position that they were very, uh, very strictly Catholic. Very strictly Roman Catholic, and that was the, mm-hmm. the. And there were Roman Catholic tools that they would use to to fight the demon, like 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 prayers and exorcisms. So it all be like something that was anti-Catholic. Yeah. 
I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that Seacrane's CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what Seacrane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car. A sleep timer. An alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. in the Paracast, which is not anti-anything or pro-anything necessarily, except trying to find the truth. Joseph A. Citro, author, a lecturer, a commentator, a man about town dealing with the paranormal, folklore, etc., etc., joins us. And you raise an interesting point then, and that is that in their worldview, this phenomena is anti-Catholic. But what about all the other religions, Muslims, Jews, etc., etc.? Where do they stand in that worldview? Well, we could ask you guys, what are the Jewish people? Do they have demons? I yes, dibbics. We do. We have dibbics, yeah. who basically are creatures that make trouble, that sometimes take over people's bodies. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think every culture probably I has think- some version of this, right? I bet so. I, I know the early Christian missionaries were quite impressed to find that in the, among native peoples here and there when they spread the, the word throughout the world. They were finding shaman who were dealing with with exorcisms in Africa and South America and other 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 places. So I, I think it's it's not only widespread, but I think it's old. I think the the, the notion is is old. It's been with us for a while, and we don't really know any more about it now than we than we ever did i mean you you pick your weapon you know it's 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 a psychiatrist it's drugs it's catholicism it's um, i don't know suicide in some cases i think so what we're really talking about then we're back to brain chemistry maybe all of this um 
reality, this, this, this pseudo-reality of the paranormal realm, maybe this is nothing more than a byproduct of, of a specific aspect of how the brain works, of, of actual brain physiology. Well, I think we have to say that whatever it is, it includes brain physiology. I mean, we've got this huge frontal lobe. We don't know what we're doing with it all. We've got the left brain and the right right brain, and they're communicating with each each other in ways that we can't even speculate about. I guess brain science is, is still trying to determine just exactly how the left and right brain. I mean, maybe the right brain is giving signals to the left brain that has to do with ghosts, or maybe it's vice versa. I don't know. Did I ever tell you about the time I saw an apparition? This was a very revealing um, anecdote for me, anyway. Yeah, I, I can I can make it real quick. It's uh, my, my my girlfriend was visiting on the weekend, and we were uh, we were sleeping, and I woke up during the night, and she wasn't beside me. So I thought, oh well, she's probably gone to use the bathroom, which seems like a pretty good idea. I'll do that when she gets back. So I sat on the edge of the bed and waited for her to come back into the room. And moments later. She walked in. So I got up from the bed. I walked over. I put my hand on her shoulder, and she just evaporated like a like like a special effect in the movie. She was just gone. And then seconds later, I heard the tongue mm. flush, and the real woman came into the world, into the room. And I I knew I knew what was happening. I mean, we talk about the hypnagogic and hypnopompic state, the state that's between awake and asleep, where yeah. you can be where you can be awake and you can experience dreams at the same time. And that's exactly what was happening. I was anticipating her coming back into the room, and so I created that as a dream image. It was perfectly convincing. It was perfectly three dimensional. It's just that it was happening entirely in my mind. Now, if that if I had seen not my girlfriend, but my sainted mother who's been in the grave many years, I would be telling you a ghost story right now. Right. But right. it's not a ghost story. So yeah, brain chemistry. I mean, was, I was partly asleep or I was partly awake. I don't know. Well, you know, I think what it comes down to is this and now I'm gonna freak everybody out. I think that human beings are an engineered species and I think that the receptors in our brains that seem designed to react with certain types of psychoactive materials like DMT or like THC. I think this has all been engineered into us in order to make us controllable. And I think that uh, ultimately this is, if there is a great secret that the governments of the world are keeping hidden, it's that they have figured out or they have found out that this is indeed the case, that essentially we are meat puppets. <laughs> and, and, and you know what? And, and as weird as this sounds, uh, I would submit that it's no weirder than any of the religious stories we've heard. It's just a question of branding that religion, uh, organized religion, is nothing more than a successful example of a two or three thousand year old branding exercise. And, and really, it's nothing more than that. And we can't know this because, in essence, really, so much of what goes on in our day-to-day -day existence is about cause and effect and control. And where, you know, as a technological species, so we think, you know, technology is about using the elements of our environment to control that environment. And so much of what people do every day is they try to maintain some perspective on the idea that they control their reality, that they control their lives. I mean, down to the extent of things like I love the, the idea of insurance, 
and the notion of computer security, that these are in any way, you know, these, these comfort people. But in fact, it, it's nonsense. There is no security in life. Insurance, well, insurance is, is it's a shell game. That basically, that, that the truth is that our reality is so malleable, it's so temporary that the idea that, you know, we control anything, even that, that the sense that we are given what we think is some degree of control over our reality, that that, that is an illusion. I think this is all just one big illusion, and I want to wake up, damn it. I, I, I do, too. And I, so you... So... I agree with you. I think commercial religion is really a way of humbling people and channeling people and controlling people. But you seem to be saying that that somebody knows the truth. Maybe it's the government and they're just not releasing the information or something like that. Is is, is there a truth out there and, and we're being protected from it and shielded from it? Is that what you're saying? You know, um, I think it's a possibility. And in long discussions I've had with our buddy Jeff Ritzman, mm-hmm. Who has some really, and, and I know you've heard some of those episodes, Joe. Yeah, yeah. He's an interesting character. And one of the things that he and I have talked about privately is, well, I mean, and, and again, we're back to human perception, right? So what if, let's say, and we'll just play around with this for a minute because it plays into a lot of things we've been talking about. What if what we think are UFOs and alien beings are really some form of sentient life that wants to control us? but can't and can only manifest if we believe that they are real. But that is the only time that they can actually become real is when we believe they're real because of the power of our perceptions and the power of our minds that we do not understand, uh, but that others do. And so all of a sudden, if you had a planet full of people who thought that this was indeed the case, that, that these things were real and that they should be believed in, that if everybody all of a sudden believed in them, that basically we would be overrun with them and they'd take us over, that this is what they need to take us over. So the fact that the government keeps people confused, and, and, and let's qualify this, does the government know the real nature of this? I suspect not. Is the government playing a game of disinformation and of secrecy around this? Absolutely. I think there's so much evidence for that. And so if, let's say the government knew, or operatives in the government knew that, if all of a sudden everybody believed in this stuff, that these creatures would materialize on every street corner and literally invade us, well, then it would be to our benefit for them to make us believe that this is not the case, that these things aren't real. And so by doing this, we keep them from manifesting. And this, in effect, is how the government protects us. Now, I know this is this is wacky stuff, but let me tell you, when it comes to trying to understand this, I've heard wackier explanations. Well, I think that's really creative. And I, I and, and try it on. You know, it, it might fit. <laughs> I don't know what to say. I've listened to, um, you know, some of those interviews that you've done with Jeff Ritzman, and he he comes off as a as a really nice guy, and he comes off as very sincere, and the, the things he describes seem very real. But what I like about him is, although he's had these very strange experiences, and I don't think he's even revealed all of them on your show, but he he doesn't come off as if he knows the answers. He's just you know as as, as puzzled as I am, and I've had none of the experiences. 
what does that say? I'm, I, I'm not sure. It, the, the experiences can be interpreted as religious experiences, I guess, can be interpreted as UFO experiences. Maybe that's what you're talking about. We don't have any harmonious way of, of perceiving this, these things. If we right. did, if we all saw the same thing, then maybe they would become real and start taking us over. But we don't. We see different things. We see Bigfoot. We see a lake monster. We see UFOs. We see ghosts, whatever. I like your idea. Yeah, it's, I know it's weird, but and that's the one thing that, that Jeff and I have really sort of found that we have in common, uh, guys, that, that Jeff and I have had a whole range of really bizarre experiences. In many ways, our experiences complement each other's, mm-hmm. but that neither of us are at the point where we believe that we understand any of it or that we have answers for what any of it means. We don't. And as I've said on the show before, and I'll say it now again, I mean, my experiences, which I kept suppressed for most of my life, I didn't discuss these things. I didn't deal with them for most of my adult life. Even as they were happening, I didn't deal with them. You know, Gene talked me into, into doing this show, and a big part of why I do it is is really because it makes me feel a little better talking about this stuff. I've been able to meet some fantastic people, and, and, and Mr. Citro, uh, you, you're a great example of that. Uh, I, I hope to be able to call you friend for whatever life I have on this earth because you're just a fascinating, sweet man. And I don't mind saying that on the air. You know, a lot of guests that we have on, we did an interview yesterday uh, when we're taping this, you know, relatively speaking. We did an interview yesterday that got me so down that I I just I I thought maybe I just need to just bail out of this because this is just ridiculous. But then, you know, I, 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 I bookend that with this interview we're doing with you today where I know Gene's having an awful time, but. I'm having a great time. I have a great time talking with you. I mean, it's just, this to me is a fantastic way to spend a couple of hours on an afternoon. Well, you know what? David always tries to read my mind. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your webpage? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can't. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability, and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. Host, and you'll learn more about Host I Can. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Jesus and David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Joseph Citro, who's an author, a lecturer, and he writes about the paranormal, folklore, etc. One thing that occurs to me is maybe the things we see 
it's all misdirection, smoke and mirrors, and something else is going on that they don't want us to see, so they focus our attention on the ghosts, the UFOs, the abductions, etc. Hmm. It's all all misdirection. It's all misinformation. Smoke and mirrors. Yeah. Right. It's like what you hear and, from the and, government and why all not? the time. Sure. It, it seems like these phantoms, whatever they are, have the power to change society, and have the power to have no impact at all because people won't talk about them. I think I, let's let's just talk about UFOs for a second as 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 one of one of the phenomena. We should know what happened in Roswell. We should know what the UFOs are. If the government knows, let's just say we should. If the government knows about it, it's going to be kind of a small hermetic cabal within the government. When we say the government, we can't mean George Bush, let's say. I mean, all the presidents and their their teams are all temporary employees, right? But there's a, right, a part absolutely. of the government that that just stays stays intact. These would be the people who would know if anyone knows. And yet we get mis- mixed signals from them. You get characters like uh, like Corso who kind of came out of the closet about Roswell and said he was actually there and he saw dead bodies, blah, blah, blah. And then you get a whole bunch of information that that denies that. I don't know. It seems to be the case with every single phenomenon that you can't get a hold of it. It's wispy, you know. But if if we could know, everybody would have to think it was relevant. You know, we'd have to be putting put, putting our pressure on our representatives and things like that. And I think this, the bottom line fact is that this is all irrelevant to most people most people yes. don't really give a damn if there's a roswell if there are yes. ufos yes and i think that's one of the one of the barriers that'll keep us from ever getting anything definitive out of the government i was, I was fascinated by this guy Fife symington who oh yeah was, yeah the phoenix lights and how as governor he kind of ridiculed it and now that he's not governor anymore, he's saying he saw the Phoenix Lights. He saw a huge craft in the sky. Well, you have to look at what um, happened to him, of course. During the time of the Phoenix Lights, he was undergoing federal investigation. He spent time in prison. He was also pardoned by Bill Clinton before he left office. And the reason he was pardoned, by the way, is because he saved Clinton's life once in some kind of swimming deal. But that's, you know. So, you know, if you save the president's life, doesn't matter what you do, you can be pardoned. But now, of course, now he runs a culinary school or something like that. So yeah. maybe he felt he can come out of the closet and reveal the sighting. But I don't know, you know, lie in one place, lie in another. Yes, we know there's a Phoenix Lights that certainly deserves a lot of investigation, but... Mm. I've interviewed a lot of people who have had had experiences and they they swear me to secrecy so it's not you know in in many cases it's not a publicity gathering device at all people have these experiences and they don't want to talk about it but this guy this guy just amazes me because it makes me ask how many elected officials how many people in government are lying i just say no no there's 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 there's, there's no <laughs> such thing you know there's, he, he he was just like um Shermer holding up a little alien puppet and using that to explain something yeah i mean it wasn't really a puppet it was a guy dressed like an alien but i mean it's it's same point right as far as politicians lying the infamous and missed Max Hedrum, the very end, I believe, of the pilot episode, uh, spouted the line, how do you know when a politician is lying? Their lips are moving. <laughs> that's, that's the bottom line as far as that goes. I think that but what you said is, is really important, though, Joe, that you know, you've spoken to a lot of people who have had experiences who don't want any recognition, who don't want to be identified with them, but 
who clearly have had something happen to them. And I think for a lot of people, they have something happen to them. And part of them really wants to talk about it just to be able to know that they're not alone and that they're not crazy. And they want to find other people who are of a like mind who they can talk about this stuff. I mean, look, you know, in, in, in our having the Paracast talking about UFOs, it, it's you know, we have on people we talk about these things, in my case, because I've seen a number of them. And I, and, and I want to be able to talk about them. But, you know, in mixed company, you bring this stuff up. And you're seen as wacky. Now, now here you are. You've authored books about this topic. I, and I have to just say, I know you're not here pitching anything, but uh, I absolutely adore your book, Passing Strange, True Tales of New England Hauntings and Horrors. I love this book. And I would recommend that all of our listeners run out and buy this book. It is full of really great stories. But now, if you're with friends who don't, really have anything more than maybe a passing interest in this stuff are you likely to, to pipe up and talk about the the interesting stories you've discovered as you've researched a book like this you know it's really weird David and it's a good question but what, ha- what, what is likely to happen if I'm at a cocktail party or dinner party or something like that is everybody wants me to tell them ghost stories or weird stories <laughs> really it's like everybody's kind of interested in it, but it's politically correct to publicly uh, admit that interest. Mm-hmm. I've had, for example, I can think um, just off the top of my head of recent conversations with a, a, a rather renowned local lawyer who saw the like Champlain monster, had an indisputable close-up sighting of it, but won't oh. talk about it, won't let me talk about it. A medical doctor who had a, a very interesting experience over in the Adirondacks when he was a little kid. They summered in the Adirondacks, and he was off by himself. I don't know, maybe he was 8 or 10 years old, playing by the lake. This old man, bearded man, comes out of the woods and starts talking to him. Mm-hmm. And he has a conversation with this bearded man who then shambles back into the woods and vanishes. So he goes back to the lodge and tells his mother about the conversation. And she's, you know, kind of alarmed. And maybe she's worried because it's somebody that they didn't know about who was in the area. Or some mm-hmm. weird old guy. So she keeps pressing, pressing him for details and descript- descriptive elements. And finally she walks out of the room and comes back with a photograph and says, is this the man you saw? He said, yeah, that's him. That's your grandfather, and his, his grandfather had been dead for years. Gee. Doesn't that just give you the creeps? Oh, like, actually, oh, as you said that, I got goosebumps. Oh, yeah. man. And this is, this is a scientist who's telling me this. this is a, um, he's been my, my, my medical doctor for years and years and years. I mean, I believe everything he says, and I believe that. But he doesn't want that story out because it somehow reflects poorly on him or his profession or something. Well, sure. You know, when you raise that issue, I think of the fact that, and this goes back a bit to John Keel, but I do people like this too, that you hear from them a normal, as if it's normal, but a UFO sighting that seems run-of-the-mill, something in the sky, whatever. Suddenly, you sit and talk with them, and maybe or maybe not, they will tell you there are a lot crazier things going on in their lives, and the UFO is like the very small tip of the iceberg. But they don't want to reveal that stuff because they don't want to sound crazy. So, therefore, they withhold details. They want to be politically correct. We don't want to be 
too weird. We're weird enough to say we see things in the sky, but because it's in the sky, I can't touch it. It doesn't impact me. It's just something I saw. But as soon as you talk to them, suddenly the UFO is just a small part of it. There's kind of an acceptable threshold, and UFOs are included in that. So you can talk about those, because those, even though they're weird, they're sort of normal. But if the Virgin Mary is piloting the UFO, you don't mention that, that kind of thing. <laughs> if, 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 if the experience kind of goes into the hyper weird. Like supposedly, I, I haven't seen this new book about the Betty and Barney Hill abduction. I'm quite, quite interested in that. I think I might have been the last person to interview Betty Hill. But anyway, I'm interested in that book because apparently the, the John Fuller book did not include some of the more bizarre elements of the case. That's my understanding. I don't know that. But I'm hoping this new book, that's by Betty Hill's niece and the ever-present Stanton Friedman, I think, maybe maybe reveal some of those heretofore unrevealed details. I'm real, real interested in seeing that. You, you guys read that? Uh, no, I, no I, I certainly haven't. Gene actually glums all the books that were sent. And, you know what's and, interesting yeah. about this <laughs> is that we had on the two authors of the book, of course, including Stanton Friedman. I think we had an interesting show, and I liked yeah. Betty Hill, by the way. You know, I met her a couple yeah, of times. Nice She's a very nice, lovely lady. Guess what? We never got the book. Uh, yeah, I was at a conference with Betty Hill back in the 90s, and she was she was scheduled to speak. This is in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, not too far from where she was living. And she was scheduled to speak, but she arrived a little late. And she explained it by saying, well, UFOs kept getting in my way. <laughs> <laughs> now, we hope she was kidding, right? She was I, I, I think I think she was. I think she was kidding. She was quite a lovable, lovable sort, I thought. The thing about high strangeness, our, our friend Jeremy Viney came on, and we, we had a show that was a wrap-up roundtable of the X-Conference event down in Gaithersburg. And uh, our buddy Jeff Ritzman, Jeremy Viney, and Gene and myself talked about this. And Jeremy brought up the fact that down in the hotel bar, late, late at night, early in the morning, that he got pulled aside by some of the m more credible people speaking mm -hmm. at, at that event. I mean, there were, there were some credible people and there were some absolute psychotic lunatics at that thing. Yeah. But um, that he got pulled aside and was talking with some of the more credible people. And he said that... You know, they would talk about how they had things to say that they wouldn't say up in front of the audience. And they said, well, if you ever repeat this or said that I said it, you know, I'll deny it. But yeah. let me tell you about the weird thing that I won't talk about publicly. And that a lot of people basically have that side where, you know, that's just the case because it does enter into such high weirdness that, you know, it's just it's either A, completely uncomfortable or B, they really are concerned that, it will decimate their credibility. Yeah, see, the government isn't the only one that has veils of secrecy. So we got to go to the bar or the hotel to get Shermer to tell his ghost stories. Is that it? <laughs> well, maybe that's, that's it. He, if he figures if he's skeptical enough, nothing will happen to him. Now, I'm joking, ladies and gentlemen. I do not personally know that Shermer has had any experiences. But it wouldn't surprise me that somebody would basically display a skeptical attitude because they want to shield the fact that underneath all sorts of crazy things are going on. Well, now, wait a minute. Shermer did have a long-running sexual tryst with a midget transvestite. Um, <laughs> now, he doesn't talk about this because, you know, it's, it's very sensitive, but indeed, I found two places on the web where he does indeed go into some detail 
and uh, and perfect pubic hair is involved. And that's all I'll say right now. Okay, now understand. Well, you can maintain a veil of secrecy about that. We're veiling it right now, but you know, you heard it first here and probably last. That's right. That's because right. after he sues us for defamation, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, 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 we wouldn't do that. Well, <laughs> we're laughing as we say it. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Joe. I wonder where Shermer really believes, because I see him as kind of a defense attorney who knows his client is guilty, mm-hmm. but still argues very persuasively that he's innocent. I mean, this right. is a posture that, that he's paid to take. You mean he goes out around the world and says, if the gloves don't fit, you must acquit? <laughs> I, guess. <laughs> I guess so. I, I think that's what he does. I, I, it would be interesting to have that bar conversation with him and find out uh, just how how much weirdness his his worldview will will really tolerate. It'd be kind of it'd be kind of interesting because I just don't think anybody can be that rigid and inflexible. The three of them, Randy and Shermer and Joe Nickel, I just can't believe they're that that inflexible. The world is too weird. Well, we had Philip Glass, of course. He was pretty inflexible. Well, yeah, I, I don't remember much about him actually, so I can't really talk about him. But I, you know, the, the, those three, that particular triumvirate, are always around. Well, I, I met Class a couple of times. He seemed like an okay chat. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. She came to Earth to conquer our planet. He traveled to the future to conquer her heart. Experience the adventure of a lifetime. Attack Attack of the the Rockoids. The critics are raving about Attack of the Rockoids. One reviewer writes, The father and son writing team of Gene and Grayson Steinberg have written a marvelous, fast-paced story of interstellar warfare and star-crossed love. The battle scenes are so descriptive, you can see the spaceships explode and be consumed by gigantic balls of flame. I enjoyed this story and the authors say there is more to come about the characters and the future world of the Rockoids. Fans of Star Wars and Star Trek will enjoy this story and look forward to many more adventures of Ray and Xanther. That's Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. Order your copy direct from Amazon Books or check out a sample chapter and get a special discount on your copy direct from www.rockoids.com. That's www.rockoids.com. Attack, Attack of the, the Rockoids. Rockoids in the grand and science fiction tradition. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Hey, we have one more segment to go with 
Joseph Citro on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. And we're going to make this last part count because we're going to reveal things you never heard before, I think, I hope. Oh, do tell. Yes, well, Joseph. <laughs> All right, so you have this kind of jaded feeling that we've heard through the show that we're never going to get to the bottom of these mysteries. We're just going to collect the information. The existence will be exploring it, maybe discovering a few things about ourselves. Now, I've mentioned this before, but I want to drop it in your lap. UFO researcher who lived many years ago said flying saucers are here to make us think. So do you think that's part of the mystery, that it doesn't matter what the solution is, it's only the thinking, the investigating, trying to learn more about humankind? I like that quote a lot. Was that Ray Palmer who said that? Sure was. Yeah, I, I, I think it's good, but implicit in that quote is that they're here to make us think, but somebody must have put them here. I mean, that's, that's the part of the quote that that is implicit. And who's trying to make us think? Is the fact that we're thinking... Does that, does that, as David suggested, create the objects in the sky? I don't know, but it does make us think. It's also tremendously entertaining. And, and I think that's maybe an element of all this that we really haven't talked about, that, 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 that the investigators and the scientists and the lecturers, and I include myself in this generalization, we're all, in a sense, entertainers. And, and, and this is our material. And it is, it is to our advantage to make the, the material as, as colorful as possible. The, the book you mentioned, David, uh, Passing Strange. Yeah. When I, when I started work on that, I had a wonderful time writing that book, by the way. This is what launched, launched the whole project. I decided I wanted to collect, like, the weirdest stories from all six New England states, the weirdest stories that were allegedly true. Mm-hmm. And there's some, some, some real weird stuff out there. But the product of all this research and information gathering is a book that I hope is quite entertaining. Does it bring us any closer to any truths? I don't know. I don't know. It's fun to read. And um, I try to be fairly honest about which stories are well documented and which are, are kind of flimsy. But I, I look at... All this stuff is entertainment at this point. Have you, have you noticed the way that the cable channels and even the, the conventional network channels are just full of the paranormal? It's just full. This is like... Uh, These days, like, yeah. Yeah, they are. When I, when I was writing my first two books, I think in 94 and 97, I was a little bit ahead, ahead, ahead of the curve. But now I'm, I'm kind of under the avalanche. It's just uh, it's everywhere. But I've had experience with, with, with television shows. And... Um, the experience wasn't good because they would always opt for the sensational. For example, I was talking earlier about that, that haunted covered bridge in Stowe, Vermont. Well, a TV crew from, from one of those interchangeable channels, History Channel, um, Discovery Channel, one of those, I don't know, they were com- coming up to do a documentary about ghosts, and they interviewed me about this haunted covered bridge. And in my interview, I used a lot of qualifiers. I'd say, well, the story is that someone was killed. The legend is people around here believe. Uh, I, I'd use a lot of qualifiers. I didn't speak as if it were um, historical fact. So when the, when the program was finally aired, I was in it for about a half a second. They plucked me out of the program, uh-huh. put, in, put in an actress who was saying all my lines, but without the qualifiers. Oh. And when, that was the point I stopped doing TV shows because it was real clear to me that uh, you know, it was, they were trying to sell the supernatural. And they were, they were trying to be 
entertaining. So basically, your words were mangled, essentially. They were taken out of context. Well, they took away all the qualifiers and presented it as if all statements of fact and the ghost and everything was a matter of uh, historical recorded fact. Right. And it isn't. It's a legend. And that's the way I was presenting it. So they, they didn't so much mangle my words as, as, as delete them. Delete, they, they deleted what I said. and They messed with the context. Yeah, yeah. Well, of course, yeah. that's so television I, I have to you. multiply that by the number of shows that are on TV, and I have to ask, you know, how often are we really getting the straight scoop, or how often are we getting the element of skepticism that the story really deserves? Well, it seems like we should be looking at all of te television through that same filter, though, right, guys? I mean, at this point, I assume that everything on television is essentially all about concision and uh, and framing, and that mm -hmm. basically whenever you see or hear something on TV, you have to assume that the entire backstory has been either hidden or shredded. And, uh, and, and, and this is simply because of the fact that at this point television is about nothing more than entertainment right. and uh, and the movie network completely came true that everything in that movie that at the time in 1976 was seen as some dark vision of the future that it's all gone down it's all happened and the one thing that we don't have is snuff television but indeed that is and, and I've said this on the show before I think that's what happened the week after 9-11 the rest of that week, every man, woman, and child in this country and around the rest of the world sat there. And certainly in this country, there were, there were no commercials the rest of that week. Everybody just sat and watched planes hitting towers and towers. Well, that is snuff television. So is the Kennedy well, assassination. Absolutely. So is any disaster of that nature. No, but there was snuff TV in a way that... Well, yeah, absolutely. But but you know what, Gene? It, it wasn't normal snuff TV. It wasn't like the Kennedy assassination because for you know from Tuesday through Friday there were no commercials. It was just the video of the planes hitting the buildings over and over. And further, parents and children sat and watched us together for hours on end. Now we don't. I don't think we really know as a country what that did to our psyche. I think we've seen the results of it in that, you know, the powers that be have used this to do terrible things in our name. But ultimately, uh, television is about entertainment, and that entertainment certainly, it seems like most of the time, is about distraction. And when it comes to the coverage of the paranormal on television, that's simply the distraction of the day. And that if they figure out a better method of distraction, there'll be something else on TV tomorrow. It's sort of it's sort of sad and it's unfortunate. It's the ratings, yeah, yeah. Well, but I wasn't confining it just to TV. I mean, I think people who are on the uh, paranormal lecture circuit are, by and large, entertainers as well, and will opt for the more thrilling version of the story. Those of us who yeah. write books will will opt for you know will will mince words a little bit to make the story a little bit more dramatic, um, and that's what people want to read. I remember that same conference where I, uh, Betty Hill was being waylaid by um, flying saucers. Stan Friedman was at that conference, and and back then it was it was at the time where everybody was trying to sell the space on Mars. Remember that whole era? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was trying to ask Stan Friedman about that, and I was the, the conference was in New Hampshire. In those days. The great stone face, the old man in the mountains, still existed. New Hampshire state symbol, the profile of what looks like a Native American, accidentally cast in stone. And so I was trying to ask Stanton Friedman, well, geez, you know, um, let, let's suppose someone from another planet flew past New Hampshire. 
and saw that face, might they not conclude that this <laughs> that it was carved to replicate the inhabitants of the planet? And I couldn't couldn't get him to answer the question. I was just, and my point, of course, is that maybe the the face on Mars was just a fantasy of light and shadows. Maybe it wasn't a, a carved, created object at all. Maybe it was just an accident. But I couldn't get him to answer the question. It was weird because he he had his presentation that he wanted to make. I think now he concentrates 100% on Roswell, but uh, it'd, be, it'd be fun to ask him some questions about Roswell. <laughs> oh, did I malign him? I didn't mean no, to. we've we've maligned Stan Freeman, yeah. haven't we, David? Oh, well, you don't have to David, interview him. I mean, David is silent. Sleeping. I put him to sleep. Yeah, no, we, we've had our own run-ins with Stanton Friedman on the show, and we've been taken a task uh, about that by our uh, by our listeners. Yeah, Friedman was on our show saying that he's a performer, that he likes being in the limelight like this, that he is a natural-born performer. And when I have mentioned that on the show, when I've repeated that, people attack me for it. Of course, I do it in a pseudo-Friedman voice, and... Uh, you know, I get into a little bit of hot water over that, but it, it's stuff that he said on the show, and and it's yeah. funny where people said, "Oh, if you make fun of Stanton, he won't come back." Well, I, I've done his, <laughs> I've done this thing, and he keeps coming back on the show. Strangely yeah. enough, so uh, it's interesting though that you mentioned the Mars stuff because clearly, I think having looked at having looked at the subsequent NASA re re reimaging of that area, it was absolutely a shadow and light play. Now, look, does that mean that at some point maybe there was some sort of a civilization on that planet that existed that's no longer there? It's entirely possible. It is possible. Absolutely it's possible. Is it possible that on the planet Earth there have been technologically advanced civilizations of which all remnants are now gone? It's absolutely possible. I I would go further to say that it's even probable on this planet. Very peculiar artifacts are occasionally dug up that yes. just <laughs> don't make any sense. They defy no. all description. They defy all logical explanations. So in the end, I'm with you, Joe, in that there are so many things that are that seem to be outside of our ability to comprehend them. We, we like to think that we are the know-it-all beings of the universe. And, and if there's anything that I've learned especially doing the Paracast with Gene for the past year and some number of months. It's that we don't know anything. We think we know so much, and, man, we really, we know squat. I've really, if there's one thing I believe, I believe that. Well, I'd I'd go one step more and say we don't know and we can't know, and that's, that's kind of creepy. I guess I sort of believe that as much as I believe anything. That we're not going to find out. It's just like um, you know, I don't, I don't have enough IQ to do uh, the sort of physics that you were talking about earlier. I'm just not, not, not smart enough to do quantum physics. It just doesn't make any sense to me. I can't grasp it. I just don't have the, uh, the brain steam to do it. And I think our species just doesn't have the, the brain steam to, to recognize whatever it is that's playing around with us. What might be yeah. worse is that we don't know we're being played around with. Well, don't don't you sort of suspect it, though? I mean, don't, don't you like yeah. the notion of the trickster? It's the only thing that kind of unifies all this experience, it seems to me. <laughs> well, it keeps coming back to a saying that I've, I've told my friends for, for years, and, and I'll retain this one in my repertoire. God is an evil comedian. And, and I use the word evil comedian uh, very specifically. Mm-hmm. 
because it definitely seems to me like if there is a universal creator or if there is a universal mind behind all of this stuff, that it, it has a sixth sense of humor. And, and if there's one thing I believe, it would be, it would be that that and the fact that that chocolate is the ultimate <laughs> thing. And if I could somehow combine chocolate and music together, I would have the ultimate religion. What if you coated CDs with chocolate? So before you play then the I'd, CDs, you'd have to suck off the chocolate. And when the chocolate uh, is gone, then you just kind of clean them up and then you put them in your CD player. Or maybe if you felt you wanted to live dangerously, you put them in before you take the chocolate off <laughs> and see what they sound like. <laughs> that sounds incredibly obscene, Gene. Thank you for that. Though. I'm so happy. I'm so happy. <laughs> <laughs> now we've horrified Joe, and he'll never come back on the show. Thank you, Gene. Thank you for doing that. Too. Oh, no. I was Joseph thinking Fitch. that once he heard this, he would be more than willing to come on as often never as possible. Now, you have totally spoiled this for all of us, Gene. Now, you should hang your head in guilt, and you should you should apologize to Mr. Citra, who has been a wonderful guest today. You should apologize to him. I apologize to you, but not to David. I never apologize to David, okay? Because if I apologize to David, then David you know, gets a bit full of himself. Yeah, no, we don't want that. God forbid that should happen. No, that, that, we don't want David to be full of himself. I, I'd love to come back and join you again when I get some answers for you. Well, the only problem with that is that maybe we never see you again, and that's I'm kind of hoping that's <laughs> could not going to happen. Could I, could I close with a quote? Well, I'll tell you what, we have a couple of minutes where you can first you can hawk a couple of books, you know. I know you have some well, stuff out I, I there. Well, I could encourage people to look at my website, which is simply com, and that'll explain what my books are and a little bit about me, and, and that's all. That's what it'll do. That's what the website's supposed to do. But I wanted to, just because of what David was saying about the evil, the evil trickster, I, I had this quote that I filched from Meister Eckhart. Um, that I used in my book, Deus Ex, I used it as an opening quote, and it's this, God laughed and begat the Son. Together they laughed and begat the Holy Spirit. And from the laughter of the three, the universe was born. (laughs) (laughs) That is probably the truth of our existence right there, but that is one scary book, man. Well, do you ever think the scene that we remember from the first movie of Men in Black, where a whole universe was in this little jewel that you wore around your neck, and mm-hmm. maybe our universe is part of, you know, oh, there's a mega geez, universe. Here that, we go. So a ward on somebody's nipple. Uh-huh. No, she said nipple. No, it's back to the scene in the movie Animal House, where they're all in Donald Sutherland's bathroom, in the bathtub, and you have our two of our characters smoking pot for the first time and you've got the whole can you imagine if the whole universe is like in one molecule in the tip of a fingernail of some giant being and then uh, what's his name is it uh, Tom um, oh the name of the actor Tom Hulse who played uh, a Mozart in Amadeus he turns it all stuff and it says can I buy some pot after that it's like that's what it's about it's about the fact that you know our, and again and what is that all about the fact that our brains have receptors for these goofy molecules that make us think all of these strange things so that somewhere in some alternate dimension two beings look at each other and go I can't wait to see what the crazy talking monkeys will do on the next episode of the Earth Show. So the Earth Show we is like an extension of the Truman Show. The EarthShow.com is a name, a domain name I own. So back off, monkey boy. Oh, what? Oh. What do you do with it? 
I pay to maintain it every year, so leave me alone. So it's one of those, got, basically one of those quiet. sites that has a placeholder on it. <laughs> he does this. I love when he does this. All right, hold on. All right, we have to end this on, on an up note, though. We, we have to end this show in a way where our listeners will want to come back and, and hear it next week. Joe, is there any possibility that maybe, even though you think we can't understand this, Maybe, just maybe, we can get a couple of steps closer to understanding it. Maybe we can't really get a grasp of what all of this paranormal stuff is about. But And, and it's entertaining to try and understand it. But do you think, is there a little part inside of you that's an optimist that says that maybe if we, if we push it this long enough, maybe we can gain a little bit of ground? A little, just a little? Yeah. Yeah, I think so, David. I think I think there's probably a couple people who have a really high psych IQ, psychic IQ, who will be able to understand it. But the problem is they won't be able to explain it to the rest of us. Mm. Uh, so, okay, I guess this is then the last episode of the Paracast. <laughs> Until next week this when we're going to somehow survive and muddle through again and all that stuff. The search, the search goes on. Indeed it does. But the, and I'm going to continue to collect stories. And you know what? Days. And we're going to continue to invite you to come back on to hear those <laughs> stories because we love that this is the two-hour session that sounded like, to me, 15 minutes. Joseph oh, A. Great. Citro author and lecturer, folklorist. Thank you so much for joining us on the PowerCast. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, David. Thank you, Gene. Thank you, David. Thank you, Thank you Joe. Thank you, Gene. The PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the PowerCast. PowerCast.